Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hi, everyone, and welcome to My Millennial Money Professional. My name is Dev Raga, and in this episode, it's actually titled Getting Into Medical School. Now, interestingly, particularly this year, I've had quite a few inquiries from parents who are doctors, but also non-medical parents contact me learning about how to potentially encourage their kids or maybe even support their kids who may want to do medicine as a career. Now, I got into medicine many, many years ago, so obviously the entrance process may have changed. And incidentally, I came across Jason, who is actually the founder, co-founder and owner of Mission Med, who's actually helping people getting into medical school. And we got in touch online and I said, why don't you guys come on to my podcast? And him and his business partner, Matt, are with me today to discuss about some of the things that parents or the actual students can do to prepare themselves for some of the challenges of getting into medical school. So I'd like to formally welcome Jason and Matt to the Marmalini Money Professional Podcast. Welcome. Thanks, Dev. Thank you very much. Thanks, Dev. Are you guys ready to get started? Of course. Let's do it. Yeah, let's go. All right, let's get started then. If you have any specific questions or comments, please contact me on Twitter or on Facebook. And remember the three main aims of this channel, education, empowerment, and entertainment. Now, firstly, we'll start with Jason. Jason, you're one of the co-founders of Mission Med, which is a company that you sort of set up to try and help people or coach them or help them to get into medical school, because obviously getting into medical school in the 21st century is not easy. It's quite challenging. And Matt is actually a medical student who's currently studying medicine. So it's really nice to have the different perspectives. Jason, I understand you're a practicing doctor. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, of course, Nev. Um, currently a GP practicing in Sydney, New South Wales, and um, currently sub-specializing in allergies and actually a bit of doing a bit of cannabis prescriptions myself. Uh, also started to dabble in a little bit of cosmetic work. Uh, I also work in a health tech startup as a CMO there. And I really do enjoy teaching. And that's one of the reasons why I started Mission Med with uh, Matthew and McCoon, who's our other co-founder. Uh, and I've been involved in teaching for other GPs and other GP registrars as well. So that's really, really interesting. So you're a GP, but you do community general practice, but you also do some sub-specialist training within that field, which I think that an interesting concept because I see that happening more and more, particularly in the metro regions. So are you in the metro region? Yes, I am. Yes. Okay. So that definitely makes sense. And then we also have Matt, who's currently a medical student, I believe at the University of Sydney, quite a prestigious institution. So welcome, Matt. Thanks, Dev. Uh, I, I guess I'll give a bit of background on myself as well. Look, I'm a medical student, as Dev said, at University of Sydney. I worked in health tech startups before this. Uh, I come from more of a data science background, still do a bit of bioinformatics research um, on genomics and metabolomics data on the side. 
And uh, like you said, I built Mission Med alongside uh, Jason and Makunda, other co-founder who's not with us today. And yeah, we, we mentor students through the journey into medical school. And it's, it's one of the most rewarding things um, in my sort of portfolio of things that I do. Right. So you've done a fair bit of other stuff as well. That's interesting. So what was your primary degree, if I may ask, prior to getting to Sydney University? Because my understanding is that it's a postgraduate program there, or do they have a hybrid model? Yeah, absolutely. So um, I was lucky enough to get into an interesting program, which sort of allowed you to do an undergraduate science course of your choice um, and have a guaranteed entry pathway into post-grad medicine. And so for my undergrad, I chose to do data science and it was one of the best decisions I made. It's um, been very, very interesting to see how those two fields uh, in, in, in AI and, and medicine have played out in the past couple of years. That's really interesting. I mean, speaking of AI, there's been a lot of talk about um, chat GPT and certainly our friendly radiologists and uh, some of the other specialties are quite worried about um, artificial intelligence taking That's over. Right. Actually, I actually went to a conference a couple of years ago where they, Microsoft presented a, a case study where they were able to automate the reporting of CT scans uh, with respect to a particular cancer. I think it was more prostate cancer, which is pretty exciting, but also quite scary to think that uh, potentially some of our jobs may be at risk. But I suspect at some stage, there's always going to be a physician overseeing the processes of AI. So Jason, is that something that you're worried about in your profession as a GP and, and subspecialist? Is AI something at the forefront? Are you sort of thinking about it in your career or not really? I've actually kind of thought about it and definitely considered how it can definitely be a tool to help us make better diagnosis and make less mistakes as doctors because I think there's kind of enough information and enough things that we need to be that we need to have on our minds. And I, I think it's definitely a tool that we can utilize to improve the healthcare that we can provide to our patients. So I'm not too worried. Uh, I'm actually quite interested and in actually given that I'm actually part of a health tech startup myself, I'm actually quite excited to see what the future holds uh, in terms of AI and what that can provide for the healthcare sector. Yeah, same, same with me. I'm not particularly worried either because at the end of the day, you need to be able to process that information and synthesize it. But I think AI is going to be something that's going to come and infiltrate the healthcare sector more and more into the future. The only thing I think is protecting us is a medical legal aspect of it. So if an AI makes a decision and we follow that decision, then who is medical legally responsible? Ultimately, I'd say it's me as a practicing physician. Now, I suppose, Matt, you might want to take this question. Getting into medical school, I mean, it's something that um, I get asked quite a lot. And to be honest, it's something that was, I can't actually remember my sort of year 12 sort of experience. Because when I got into medical school, you know, some years ago now, there was only one medical school per state. So, and at the time, I remember doing some sort of statistical analysis, and I sort of figured that the probability of actually getting into medical school back in the day was was extremely challenging. I suspect it's still very challenging. But um, how many medical schools are there now in Australia? Is it more than one per state or? I, I, I'm guessing a lot has changed since. In fact, now, you know, plenty of universities um, offer medical degrees and I believe there's probably more than 20 currently. And it's hard to specify the exact number because some universities run uh, their medical program in conjunction with another university. I think one thing that's interesting to note is that different universities offer different types of qualifications. So some offer MBBS and others offer MDs. And, you know, practically speaking, there's not much of a difference because, you know, if you're going to get AFRA um, registration either way, but semantically MBBS is technically an AQF 
Australian Qualifications Framework Level 7, whereas MD is an AQF Level 9, which is equivalent to a master's level as opposed to a bachelor degree. Um, but practically speaking, again, there's not much of a difference. And, 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 you know, there's many states with different medical schools offering either the MBBS or MD. So in New South Wales, you have like UNSW, WSU, University of Newcastle, Macquarie, UNDS, Wollongong, and in Victoria, Monash, I think Melbourne, Deakin, you know, the list goes on. I could, you know, go forever, but here um, I'll probably just cut it there because those are the one of the main ones. Jason, coming back to you about getting into medical school, do you remember the experience you had to get into medical school and did you do the MBBS traditional undergrad six-year course or did you do the master's course or did you do the Newcastle course, which was the Bachelor of Medicine? Yes, yeah, so I, I entered uh, medicine through a postgraduate pathway. Uh, so I had to take the GAMSAT and then do the interview and again do and then I got into Sydney University after that. When I was going through medical school, we were just transitioning to an MD program. So I think it was either my year or the year after my year that uh, Sydney University transitioned to the MD program. So I actually ended up getting an MBBS rather than an MD uh, as my qualifications. I guess from what I know of the MD program, I believe it just contained a necessary research component, which I believe a lot of other universities that offer the MD program well, pretty much all of the universities that offer the MD program would have to have in the course in order for the medical course or medical program to be considered an MD program. So that was my experience going through it. I don't think in terms of what I learned, there was any significant difference coming from an MBBS as opposed to an MD program. It still, I guess, prepares you to be a doctor, but maybe having that research component uh, also helps you perform or do research in the future, potentially to help with specialization, for example, in the future. Yeah, it's all about sort of setting up for the future, isn't it? And I guess, you know, coming back to Matt, what was your experience? So, tell us about, so think about it this way. I'm a parent or I'm a student and my my children or, or the student is interested in getting into medical school. Can you tell us about the entrance process and I suppose it sort of varies between undergraduate or postgraduate. So maybe talk to us about the undergraduate process. What are some of the things that you did that you felt was helpful in order to prepare you to get into medical school? Yeah, absolutely. Happy to talk about that. And maybe before I kind of go into exactly what I did, I should probably set the stage as to the main components um, involved in the actual entrance process. And then I can dive into some of the more detailed parts. Sure. Um, going into undergraduate medical school coming out, most people will be applying out of high school. Some people might take a gap year after high school and still apply for an undergraduate program. And it varies between medical schools, but largely there's three main components. The first is a ATAR or some equivalent academic equivalent. For instance, if you're in a different state, it might be the uh, QCE or something else. The second is the UCAT, which is an aptitude test that we can jump into more detail about uh, later. The third is an actual interview. So most universities pretty much use the UCAT and the ATAR as a threshold to invite candidates to an interview. And some universities use uh, portfolio or application as well. For instance, James Cook University. And then after the interview, universities will usually rank candidates using a combination of the UCAT, ATAR and interview. So I guess having set up that sort of structure, some of the things that I did that I found very useful was in regards to the ATAR, I had very uh, carefully sort of looked into how my learning was going to affect um, the way that I kind of 
uh, digested content. And so I used year 11 uh, and year 10 during my high school years as a very purposeful kind of way to learn how to learn, which is something that sounds very strange, but effectively it's learning how to process content early on so that once I hit year 12, I was effectively taking in large amounts of content efficiently. And that's so important. That's the first thing. And the second thing is, believe it or not, uh, actually paying a lot of attention to extracurriculars. I think there's a common fallacy amongst people that in year 12 and year 11, you're meant to sort of hunker down and study and only do that. But actually, it's really, really important to have those extracurricular activities. For instance, you know, I, I did prefects, one of the best times I had in um, school leadership, uh, doing volunteering outside of uh, school at a, at a childcare clinic. Some of the best experiences I had there were material for during the interview when I was asked particularly challenging questions about um, what I did outside of academics, how I spoke to people, how I handled challenging situations, what the most uh, tough, you know, event that has happened in my life was. Things like that require experience outside of school. And I think having been actively involved in that throughout high school was pivotal in allowing me to kind of thrive in this process. So yeah, hopefully that answers the question. Yeah, that's a great answer. And, and I guess that's the undergraduate process. What about the postgraduate process? Do they still have the three frameworks? Do, you have the, the, do they consider the year 12 mark because now you've done a degree or do they consider the UCAT or there's GAMSAT, I think? Can you talk a little bit about that process? Yeah, I think maybe Jason would be uh, really well uh, poised to kind of take that question because I believe, Jason, you, you went through the postgrad pathway, didn't you? Yeah, yeah, that's right. So when I went through the postgrad pathway, so they usually don't, I mean, they wouldn't look at your year 12 marks. They would look at your GPA instead. Uh, so that would be the marks that usually the last, I think, three years of marks that you got either in like your bachelor degree or if you did a, um, a higher degree than that, then you, they might take into account a PhD or a master's. And then they have the GAMSAT, which is a pretty grueling six-hour exam, uh, which was not very fun to sit, I'll be honest with you. I was definitely very exhausted after sitting that exam. And then you have the interview. I believe Sydney University now has just recently removed their interview component, whereas when I went through it, they still had the interview. And I have to say that the interview process for graduate universities is a little bit different, especially with the Sydney interviews. They weren't kind of too... There wasn't a lot of questions asking more about your extracurriculars. It was all very scenario-based questions, asking about kind of ethical decisions or basically trying to understand your decision-making process when and how you approach those questions. So, yeah, so that's the main difference. But in kind of in parallel to the undergraduate process, you know, the, the UCAT, instead of the UCAT, there's the GAMSAT. And then instead of the ATAR, there's the GPA. So the, the processes are still quite similar, but there are some variations. Right. So just sticking with you, Jason, for a short while then, you mentioned year 12 marks, not really that relevant. You mentioned GPA, so that's very relevant. Now, the GAMSAT, is it an aptitude test or is it actually an exam based on knowledge? Yeah, so that's a very good question. I think the GAMSAT is a test where you can definitely study for it more than I would say the UCAT. The GAMSAT is more of a knowledge-based test from my understanding. So definitely the science component, there's a lot of knowledge base there. So I believe when I did the GAMSAT, this, the science kind of questions involve physics, you know, had a bit of like even immunology, physiology, a bit of, uh, actually during my year, there was a lot of organic chemistry as well. 
which I was actually quite fortunate because I did organic chemistry in my undergraduate studies, which helped a lot. So right. I believe definitely, I think the GAMSAT is, something, is a test that you can definitely study for. Right. Okay. So with the postgraduate entrance process after the GAMSAT, Matt was mentioning about the undergraduate process where they use that as a threshold. And then the universities then have a individual process on whether they want to interview or not interview. So obviously not all universities would be interviewing people that have done well in GPA and GAMSAT. Now, Jason, just about the GAMSAT, you mentioned you can study for it and it's based on knowledge-based and just you know, sort of going by what Matt was saying in the UCAT and the, the sort of the year 12 mark, they use that as a threshold. So in the postgraduate entrance process, they use the GPA and the GAMSAT as a threshold. Then it sounds like after that, not every university would have an interview process. Is that right? So you could potentially do really well in GPA, really do really well in GAMSAT, and that would be enough to get you over the edge to get into medical school in some universities. Yes, uh, that is definitely correct. And there are some universities as part of the undergraduate pathway that also offer that option. So you can potentially do extremely well in the ATAR and not have to, uh, or extremely well in the ATAR and also in your UCAT to not have to then sit the interview. Although I have to say, there are very limited places for those universities. And usually those universities have extremely high thresholds because a lot of students apply to those universities. So I think for the postgraduate pathway, students have to apply through the GAMSES, uh, which is basically a portal similar to the UAC, except universities that are part of the GAMSES Essentially, they only offer one interview to the student and they use that interview score across uh, all of the universities and they rank them based on that. There are some universities that have opted out of that process, Sydney being one of them. So you can literally apply to Sydney and then through the GAMSAS for all the other universities. But essentially, you do have to rank the universities in order of preference on the GAMSAS uh, portal in order to kind of get access for your medical program application to to basically apply to those universities. Now, Matt, coming back to you, we just learned about GAMSAT, about the process of having one application and potentially just one interview with the exclusion of University of Sydney and, and maybe some other ones, and that gets distributed across as one application to all of the universities. Is it the same process for the undergraduate process? So you do the year 12, then you do the UCAT and then do you have the one interview and that gets distributed across to all of the universities that need the interview? Oh, no, not quite. Yeah. So with the undergrad, it's quite different in the sense that each university will run their own interview program and different universities will host different types of interviews. So for instance, some universities um, like UNSW will have a panel interview um, which essentially in, in a nutshell is effectively two people uh, from community members or anyone else who ask you very personal questions. Um, some universities will have scenario style interviews with multiple stations, which is a completely different format. And you can see that each of these universities will have their own format and you'll have to attend each of these interviews separately. So oftentimes you'll hear around about November to January sort of period, a lot of high school students who've just finished will go 
take flights to different states to do their interviews, particularly because they've applied interstate or they'll be going around to lots of different universities within their own state, do different interviews. Right. And I remember that process and I I got on as an undergrad and yeah, we had to go to interstate interviews, which was quite an expensive process. So is that what you did, Matt, or did you sort of apply across the board and just attend as many interviews as possible? Or did you just stick with the University of Sydney because you'd already decided? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, Interestingly enough, the University of Sydney interview was one of the first interviews I sat. And they actually let me know on the day itself, because University of Sydney does it a little bit differently to pretty much every other university. They let me know on the the night of my actual interview whether I'd actually gotten the offer or not, whereas all the other universities will usually um, produce an offer and sort of send it through the uh, main university admission centre, which happens much later. So I already knew that I sort of had an offer, but I still went and sat other interviews um, interstate. So I did go to Well, actually, I sat some of the interviews online and uh, I went to Newcastle, which is not interstate, but it is requires like a two hour trip. But uh, a lot of the other interstate interviews like in Western Australia and Northern Territory, I decided uh, against flying to there because I would I knew that I wasn't going to um, go to that university, even if I did get an offer there because UCID had already given mine. For context, was this pre-COVID? That's right. Yes, it was pre-COVID. And and that is something that is good that you mentioned that because uh, I do want to clarify a lot of interviews these days, uh, particularly in the last two two years or so, have all been online. So um, previously, JMP would have done their interview where you'd have to travel to Newcastle, and now right. all of it's done online. That's good to know because for a lot of people, particularly aspiring students, traveling flights and accommodation is quite expensive. So I'm glad that you know there is that option to do it via Zoom or um, or Teams meeting. And going back to what you said about, I mean, it sounds like Matt, you had already thought about this, structured it right from year 10. And and one of the things that Matt mentioned was the biggest thing about getting into medical school was to be able to process large volumes of information in a very, very short period of time. And that's a skill that I use as a doctor even now, and I'm sure Jason would use as a doctor um, during his practice. And it sounds like you'd thought about that. I mean, that's year 10, year nine level, to be honest, I wasn't thinking that far ahead. So you had consciously made that decision very early on in high school. Is is that right or slightly unusual? Yeah, that's a good question, Dev. I think I would say that I'd always maintained a decent level of interest in medicine health, I'd say in general. I wouldn't say definitely medicine. In year 10, I had I was lucky enough to have a bit of exposure um, to the healthcare industry in general because my mother, who's a sonographer, took me often to her the clinic that she worked at, and I actually really enjoyed my right. time there. But I think in year 10, participating in extracurriculars perhaps wasn't for the pure purpose of being able to utilize those experiences in the interview. I think the reflection was more retrospective in the sense that um, after the fact, I'd realized that those experiences were actually quite formative and made the interview process a lot easier for myself. But very much during year 10, year 11, when I'd done those extracurriculars like Duke of Ed, hiking every term, like it was very much a, hey, this is a really interesting thing to do. It's fun. It's outside of school. I might get some really great experiences out of it, which I did. And in retrospect, they formed very strong learning experiences for myself. Now, back to you, Jason. 
you obviously help students to get into medical school or support them to try and help them to get into medical school, but you've got a very unique perspective in that you are a practicing physician. So what do you think now that you know the entrance process and what you are now as a fellow doctor, what are some of the primary good qualities of a doctor from your perspective? And do you think the entrance process reflects that or does it really depend on the specialty that you want to do? Yeah, that's a, that's a really good question. I think there are plenty of good qualities that would embody uh, what we would, I guess, classify as a good doctor, but I wouldn't say it's any different to just being a very good human being. So qualities such as honesty, integrity, empathy, uh, being conscientious, grit, respect uh, are probably just a few of the important qualities. And some of these qualities are also listed in the Good Medical Practice, a code of conduct for doctors in Australia, uh, which is published, I think, by the AMA. And look, I would definitely say the list definitely goes on longer than that. And I think being a doctor uh, embodies a lot of other characteristics and qualities that uh, you would require. And I guess the second part of the question is, uh, Jason, does the whole interview entrance process reflect what's required to be a good doctor? I think the interview entrance process, it was designed to ensure that candidates were selected not just based on their academic ability, but also on their personal qualities. And I think those personal qualities that embody a good doctor, they, they want a student that has a good foundation to develop these qualities because there probably has been circumstances where there has been doctors in the past which may have experienced negative press or there may, may have been negative news articles surrounding the way they practice or the way they conducted themselves. So I, I think these qualities are quite important and the interview process has been designed to assess for these qualities. So a lot of universities pretty much have a set list that they go through in the interview to help select for candidates that they want. So do I think that the interview process uh, works. I uh, definitely do think it works and it definitely do does select for the candidates with these strong qualities. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? I mean, when I when I was in, I mean, I was I was a 90s kid, right? And J- Jason, just for context, were you a 90s kid or were you a 2000s kid? Uh, I was a 90s kid. I was born in 1990. Right. Okay. Just, just a 90s kid, right? Just. Um, I, was, I, was bo- I was born in the 80s, right? So, <laughs> so one of the things prior to all this introduction of, you know, we used to call it UMAT back in the day. Now it's called UCAT and the interview process, et cetera. People basically did really well in year 12 and pretty much got perfect scores or close to perfect scores. And basically they just got into medical school. Like that was the usual process. And then one of the things that they noticed was they weren't getting candidates that were well-rounded because one of the best qualities of the doctor, I think, is the ability to communicate, to be able to communicate complex concepts quite simply to a patient, because ultimately that's kind of what we do. We're in the business of changing behavior and communication. Um, And I suspect that's what sort of prompted all this sort of entrance pathway to come in. But prior to all this, just for Matt's benefit, you basically just sat your year 12 exam got 99.95 or whatever it was and basically got into medical school. That that was it. There was no UCAT, there was no UMAT. So it's interesting how things have changed. And I think in other countries as well, uh, particularly in Western Europe and North America, this sort of entrance process is pretty standard in terms of, uh, you know, getting into medical school. Now, we, we might actually take a quick break. And when we come back, I want to really go into the topics about 
you know, what Mission Med does. I want to specifically talk about UCAT and also specifically talk about medical school interviews in terms of exactly what is the sort of the things that they ask for. And of course, you know, uh, talk about your particular sort of Mission Med as to why you started it, what's the purpose of it. So we'll be right back just after this break. If you're after personal financial advice, don't get it from a podcast. If you would like help based on your own personal situation, head over to sortyourmoneyout.com. Click get help and we'd be happy to introduce you to one of our trusted advisors. Our panel of advisors, mortgage brokers and accountants work with clients all over Australia so they can connect with you wherever you are. That's sortyourmoneyout.com and click get help. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Okay, so welcome back. We're with Matt and Jason, founders and co-founders of Mission Med. And we're talking about getting into medical school because I've had several queries about this from students, from parents uh, on behalf of their children, and also some healthcare workers, because things have changed on how to get into medical school, the, the processes and what they're looking for, et cetera, compared to when I got on. Now, full disclosure, Matt and Jason own and operate a business called Mission Med. And in fact, the reason why I'm doing this is because on the online forums, someone asked in actually the medical forums about getting into medical school. And Jason basically just commented on that. And I cold messaged him and said, hey, do you want to come on and have a chat? Because I get all these questions about getting into medical school. And of course, I don't know what to say to these people. And I want to be able to help these people. So let's talk about your business, Jace, about what your business offers, a mission med. So tell us about why you started it with Matt and your other co-founder. And what are you hoping to achieve in terms of your goals out of this? So I started Mission Med, I guess, uh, a bit of context before that. Before I started Mission Med, I it was a way to you know, I always love teaching. I love mentoring students. I really like helping them achieve their goals. So I did this when I was at university. I did it uh, even after I left university for a few years. And then I took a bit of a break during my junior years as a doctor. And then I decided, look, I have this wealth of knowledge that I really want to pass on to other students and really helped them in the process because I didn't have anyone to guide me when I went through it. And it was pretty tough. Um, I was lucky enough to find a mentor who was a quite a famous neurosurgeon who helped me a little bit through the process, which made a huge difference in my ability to actually get into the medical program at Sydney University. So I'm very glad for that. So I really wanted to, I guess, help other students. And that's the reason why I founded Mission Med with Matthew and Mukund. So yeah, interesting story was I, I literally just 
found them and found their website. And I just reached out like you reached out to me and we decided to work together after we had a chat and realized that our goals were in alignment. And yeah, basically we really wanted to just help students through that journey because it's a pretty treacherous journey without any kind of mentorship or guidance. And it can be quite confusing and convoluted with all the different processes and the requirements between each university. Uh, so that's the, the gist of how we got started at Mission Med. And what we do at Mission Med is we currently we focus on helping students through, especially through the undergraduate process of getting into medical school. So helping them with uh, preparing for the UCAT and also uh, the interviews. But also we've also helped students prepare their applications and portfolios for other universities where that's required. Okay, fantastic. And so so it sounds like you sort of randomly contacted Matt. So I might ask Matt, then how did you and your co-founder, who's unable to join us tonight, how did you get started? Did you start this pretty much after getting into medical school? Was that your motivation to help other students to do the same as what you did? Yeah, I think um, interestingly enough, Jason and I and and Mukun, we were all walking parallel paths without really knowing each other um, in the beginning. We all had very similar I guess, desires, so to speak, and, and motivations. After I left high school, I, you know, I'd done a fair bit of, you know, small entrepreneurship stuff when I was a kid during high school. And then after high school, I wanted to do something that mattered. And I, and I remember how difficult it was going through the whole admissions process. And, um, I figured there has to be a better way. And so, I started this probably, I'd say two or three months after graduating high school. The first thing we did was we wrote a book, which was on medical interviews just in general. And uh, we did a webinar for parents just to see if we could explain some of those things to a demographic that would care a lot about it. Uh, And funnily enough, Jason showed up. He was not a parent, but uh, he was interested in us. And uh, it turned out we had a chat and it turns out we had very, very common interests and goals. And it made sense to combine both of what we were doing. Jason had had been running his own, you know, interview uh, mentorship sort of program for a while. And we had been writing the book and and building a lot of content out as well. And it just made sense to combine the two things. And your other Mukund, I think his name was, that he wasn't able to join us tonight. He's also a medical student? Yes, that's right. Yeah. Right. Okay. How interesting. That's fascinating stuff. And look, that'll sort of segue into the UCAT process. Now, I wrote the UMAT pretty much at the early stages of its introduction. There was a lot of controversy when it was introduced because people basically found the exam completely unrelated to actual, you know, knowledge-based exam. It was an aptitude test and it had three components. And I still remember the first component was processing large volumes of information very, very quickly. And the second portion was about, you know, doctor-patient scenarios or ethical questions. And the third portion was this puzzles where you had to find shapes and orientation and things like that. It was sort of a bizarre sort of sort of exam. And because at the time, there was no preparation courses, right? So essentially, people were just randomly doing this exam and some people got on and some people didn't. How is UCAT different to UMAT? And is it very similar in terms of, you know, random sort of questions? Is, is it anything medically related at all? Yeah, definitely. I can speak on that. Um, I, I know Jason would have done the UMAT, um, but uh, UCAT was funnily enough introduced in my year of graduation and UCAT is an entirely different test from the UMAT, I'd say. The system for me when I graduated in 2019 changed 
basically in January from the UMAT to the UCAT. And, and it really boils down to speaking on the difference between the two. It really boils down to the UMAT gives you more time per question, but the questions are much more difficult. Um, and the UCAT gives you less time, sometimes, you know, 15 to 20 seconds to answer a question, but the questions are slightly easier. Um, it contains sort of five main sections. There's verbal reasoning, which is largely kind of reading passages and, and finding, you know, double negatives and, and it's comprehension effectively. Decision making, which is very heavily based around syllogistic puzzles um, and reasoning and Venn diagrams, so on and so forth. Quantitative reasoning, which is the third section, largely to do with just quick mental maths. Abstract reasoning, the fourth section, which is the puzzles you mentioned earlier, um, that holds a bit of similarity with the UMAT, um, its predecessor. And, and finally, situational judgment, the fifth one, which is very similar to ethical scenarios. It gives you a multitude of different scenarios you might encounter as a junior medical officer or as a medical student and asks you how you would respond in such situations. And I guess this is just a note to listeners as well. I, I, I would highly encourage those who haven't yet particularly parents too, to take a look at some example questions online. And I guess one more thing I should probably mention about the UCAT, which may be different from the UMAT, is the UCAT is, is graded on a percentile system, which means that students are measured based on their performance relative to the cohort. So would the cohort be that much different though? I mean, are we talking about similar-minded people, similar-caliber people applying, or is there large fluctuations in the cohort on a year-to-year basis, because I assume the UCAT exam is relatively standardized every year, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. And, and, and you interestingly lead me to a very interesting point here. The 99 percentile score actually rises without exception each year. And so it's currently sitting at 3,260 this year, or the, the year that had just passed. But all the way back in 2019, when I had done it, it was sitting quite low. It was uh, something like 3,000, probably like 3,100. Can't exactly remember the exact number, but it, it rises without exception each year. You mentioned sort of a few thousand people sort of getting in the 99th percentile and that sort of rising. To provide context, how many people actually sit the UCAT in Australia? Yeah, that's a good question, Dev. I think it's around 14,000, if I'm not mistaken. Okay, so to provide some context in Victoria, there's about 40,000 VCE students every year. So that's a fair bit of competition to actually get into that sort of percentile. And out of all these people that sit the UCAT, and I guess the question for you, Jason, is how many medical school places are there? I mean, what's the statistical probability that they go through this process and they'll actually get in? Oh, that's a very good question. I don't know the exact answer to that. We can definitely look it up, but if you're looking at across 20 plus medical schools, I mean, each of them have different numbers of medical students. You're really looking at, at most 20 a few times. Yes, because it varies between medical schools. I don't have the exact number off yeah. the top of my head. Yeah, yeah no, I, I, I wouldn't know either. The main reason is because this it's a two-stage process, right? So the number of people who do the UCAT and the number of people who do the interview, there's a culling process between that also. So really, right. yeah, so it, it's hard, to, particularly also because the success rate for different medical schools is also different. And the number of people that the medical school invites to an interview between medical schools is also different. So I don't know how much degree of accuracy you want in the answer in terms of like on the pod, but yeah, it would be difficult to sort of give that answer. 
Right. Okay. But but it's fair enough to say it's an extremely, it sounds like it's an extremely competitive process as it's always been. And I suspect it's probably more competitive now than ever before. Now, Matt, coming back to you, you mentioned about the medical school interview here, and we're still sticking to the topic of undergraduate medical school interview. What sort of questions do they ask? I remember my medical school interview was pretty random. Like one of the questions they asked me was, if a Martian lands on earth, how would you explain to them what an AFL football game is? And I was like, well, at the time, I didn't like AFL. I didn't know any of the rules. So I found that question really difficult. Is it those sort of questions in your experience that they ask in undergrad med school? Yeah, that's a good question. I, I, I um, am thoroughly amused that you actually got that question. I certainly haven't come across uh, a question that is that out of pocket. I think the questions that I got across all my medical school interviews were a lot more standard, uh, standardized in that sense. So, I mean, I got two flavors of um, medical school questions, one of which is personal style questions in those personal style interviews that I spoke about earlier. Those ones tended to be things like they might open with something more bizarre, like what is your spirit animal? But eventually they would get to more standard questions like how would your friend describe you? Or, you know, what is your relationship like with your mother and father? Would you say you had a lot of friends growing up when you were in uh, primary school? What are the biggest challenges you faced in the last two years? Questions like that. And then in, in, in the more sort of uh, scenario based style interviews, the types of questions that I got occasionally were things like, you know, you're on your way to work, you are running late, you know, you'll be fired if you don't get to work on time. And then you see a man who looks like he's lost, he's elderly on the side of the road. What do you do in that situation? And you have to sort of explain your thought process and um, what you would do in that specific uh, context. So you can see there's kind of two main flavors of, of questions. And obviously, there's going to be variations, but hopefully that gives you a bit of an idea of what it would look like. And are they really looking for a right answer? I mean, let's face it, right? I mean, that, that's, a, that's a really good scenario where it could happen to anyone today. You don't have to be a medical school student to understand that you're walking down the street and there's an elderly person who's confused, but you've got to get somewhere from point A to point B with a consequence of losing your job. What do they expect you to say in that situation? I mean, clearly, in my view, the right answer is, you know, bugger your job, you'll go and help this elderly guy out. But practically, is that something that most people would do? I mean, how do you approach that? Jason, you might have an interesting take on this because I know you've sat yourself on some of these interview panels before. Yeah, so it's not so much the answer that you give, but rather the decision-making process and how you process that information. And the answer that you give should be based on not only logic, but also, you know, it could involve a bit of kind of uh, sympathy or empathy or compassion towards that particular subject. I mean, ideally in the ideal world, I would hope that if it was my elderly grandparents, then someone would be out there helping them regardless of, I guess, their job. But also, you know, in the context of the job, you might want to consider whether your job requirements are, are quite kind of, I guess, necessary or very important, I guess, as, as a doctor, you know, it could also mean saving lives and potentially being late could also compromise other people's health as a result. So I, I guess it's really balancing those two discussion points and figuring out what's the best approach. 
there isn't always a right or wrong answer. It really depends on how you balance those uh, issues and, and give a response based on that thought process. That That's what really counts. Right. Okay. So it's all about justification. So they're not really looking for, I mean, I, mean, I could easily see candidates falling into a trap because they're going to think, okay, what is the right answer in this case? I mean, the right answer appears to be, I would lose my job and go help this person out. But what you're really saying is, as long as the answer has good justification in relation to medicine and, and you're able to back that up, they really want you to think about the thought process of how you arrive at your answer rather than the actual answer itself. So that sort of clarifies that. And I guess the question is, and again, back to you, Jason, some students may not be good at interviews, right? So is that what your sort of business does? Uh, do you coach people about these sort of interviews? Do you actually prepare them for this? I mean, how do you fit in with Mission Med for candidates that want to get into medical school? And how does that reflect the experience of the candidate when they actually get to the interview? Have you had much feedback about that? Yeah. So look, that's a very good point that you've raised that some candidates aren't I guess they, they don't have the necessary skill set or they haven't had the necessary practice or they may be introverts where they feel a bit kind of shy and not, uh, I, I guess, they, they don't have those right kind of skills or, or they don't really understand what kind of context the interviewers want. So that's kind of where we come in. So we, we help students in that regard um, is basically we help them come out of their shell. We help them develop frameworks to help them address these difficult questions and certain question types have having a certain framework can actually help you answer that question in the context that the interviewer might want to hear it. So that's kind of what we teach our students to do. And at the end of the day, we give the students a realistic kind of, uh, we, we give them practice and give them a realistic expectation of what the interview process is like so that they can actually develop confidence and the abilities to address those questions and therefore improve their scores. It's funny that you talk about, you know, some candidates not being naturally gifted in that regard. And I certainly, for one, was not a very talkative person when I was in year 12. If you were, put, if you were to put me in that situation, I would sometimes freeze up. Or even when I went for my interviews, I definitely bombed them because I, I didn't get in after high school. So... And it took a lot of years for me to come out of my shell and actually develop those skills. And I think it's important to note that these skills can be developed, just like, uh, you know, mathematics skills or skills in, you know, other science subjects or in English. There is a way to develop these skills. And it's important to understand that natural ability, yes, it does help to some degree, but at the end of the day, practicing and having the right people help you develop these skills is also quite important. And sticking to the, I guess now moving on to the postgrad, is the interview process in the postgrad entrance process, is it very similar to the undergrad process where you get situational questions or sort of general questions or personal questions? Or is it more hardcore biology or hardcore sort of actual knowledge-based questions? And I guess, Jason, you went through the postgrad program, so you can probably talk about that as well. Look, the, the postgrad program or the postgrad interviews are, I would say, they're mostly scenario-based questions. There might be some personal questions thrown in there, but on the most part, they're, they're mainly scenario-based questions. And I feel the postgraduate interview questions are definitely a lot harder. They definitely put you in more difficult position and you really have to come up with a good reasoning and justification for your actions. That's 
you know, I think that's the biggest difference between postgraduate interviews and undergraduate interviews in terms of the difficulty. And I guess the reason for that is because people have more life experience. Often postgraduate candidates, they've worked in a job before. They have those kind of life experiences to help them answer those questions because have, I guess developing that kind of social element to your uh, personality definitely helps you to answer those questions because you might have come across those situations in, in, in the past and you can use elements of what you did there to answer the question. So therefore, I found the competition to be a lot more, uh, a lot tougher. Yeah. So now we're going to flick back to Matt. Now, Matt, you mentioned that you went through the undergraduate process with the University of Sydney. And in fact, you got told the same night, which is their process. How did you go about preparing for the interview? Did you do anything special or, I mean, what was your experience like? I was very much similar to Jason in the sense that I was pretty introverted, sorry, uh, throughout high school. And I really had to sort of get out of my shell. And I, I think I did a couple of things. First thing I did was I had friends to really sort of practice with. So effectively, we all went through a medical interview program of some sort. So we went out there and found these sort of interview workshops that we could attend. So we, you know, paid our ticket, went to those workshops and then got some fundamental information about how the interviews worked. And then I sort of practiced with friends. It was very ad hoc. And I think I wish I had a bit more direction. I spent, I had a lot more time effectively to prepare. Yeah. And eventually I sort of got to the point where I was able to really speak well and and answer questions. And I guess from a mission med perspective, you guys prepare people only for the undergrad. So you guys prepare them for the UCAT and the interview, or do you guys prepare them for the postgraduate pathway as well? So currently uh, we we just mainly focus on the undergraduate students, uh, but we are looking at potentially expanding our portfolio to postgraduate in the future. But at this stage, we don't have the resources or manpower to do that. So we've been mainly focused on the undergraduate, but we will probably be moving to that field or space a bit later. Right. Fair enough. Now, that sort of concludes part one of this uh, episode about getting into medical school. There's lots more topics I want to talk about, entrance in other countries, how Matt and Jason invest their money. We have to talk about money when you're talking about when you're talking to Dev. We're going to talk a little bit about scholarships in part two as well. And also we're going to talk the uh, hot topic of private school, public school, you know, does it really matter? And some final wisdom thoughts from Matt and Jason. So that's in part two. So thanks very much for listening for this episode. Now, if you have any questions or comments, contact me on Twitter or Facebook. And of course, please leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform that you may be using. Just leave a five-star review on all of the platforms. That's even better. And if you have a positive review, post it on because the more people access it, the better it is. And remember, we put a lot of thought and effort into these podcast episodes. Now, my name's Dev Rago. This is My Millennium Money Professional. Join me in part two when we interview Matt and Jason about getting into medical school. And until then, please make sure you stay safe. We acknowledge the Awabakal people, traditional custodians of the land on which our studio sits, and pay respects to their elders, past, present, and emerging. We extend that respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples who may listen to our podcast. 
This podcast is for education and entertainment purposes. Any advice is general financial advice only, which does not take into account your objectives, financial situation, or needs. Because of that, you should consider if the advice is appropriate to you and your needs before acting on the information. If you do choose to buy a financial product, read the product disclosure statement, target market determination, and obtain appropriate financial advice tailored to your needs. Simo Interactive Proprietary Limited, the publisher of the podcast, and Glenn James are authorized representatives of Money Sherpa Proprietary Limited, which holds financial services license 451289. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 